This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we invite Intel's Remy El Wazan to talk to us about AI trends and what the data pipeline really looks like. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipor. Zipor. I love NetApp because it's so funny. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the studio with me today. I have two very special guests to talk to me about AI. I mean, we talk about AI a lot on this podcast, but today we're going to talk about it in a more holistic fashion. We're going to talk about it from a general approach uh, and the industry trends. So with me today from NetApp, uh, Joseb Dermillion. Hi, Joseb. How you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. So, Joseb, uh, for those of us who are uninitiated, who are you? What do you do here? Well, I am a senior solutions manager at NetApp. I am covering uh, the AI machine learning from business development perspective, and I'm working very closely with the uh, NetApp's AI product team. Excellent. And you came from another location. Like They, they actually shipped you out to Sunnyvale from they somewhere else. Out. I mean, you know, people think that moving from one state to another is difficult. I moved from one continent to another. So I just, this is my second or the third week to be precise in Sunnyvale uh, from Dubai. So I was part of NetApp's uh, Dubai team. I have been with NetApp for five years now. And uh, we just decided that, uh, that that is better for all of us that I start working from here. Excellent. All right. So also on the phone with us, uh, a very special guest from Intel, uh, Mr. Remy L. Wazon. Hi, Remy. Hey, hi, Justin. How are you? Doing well. So Remy, for those of us who are unaware of who you are, what do you do and uh, how do we reach you? Hey, I'm the former CEO of uh, Movidius that was uh, acquired by Intel in uh, 2016. Uh, Movidius was, uh, is still, as a matter of fact, uh, developing solution for an acceleration of an AI at the edge of the network. Uh, and now I'm uh, part of uh, our um, AI initiative at Intel, uh, working on uh, uh, different projects. Excellent. So what, how did Movidius accelerate things at the edge? What does it do? You know, the paradigm was the... Uh, uh, the fact that um, uh, existing uh, scalar or vector um, architecture uh, would not fit uh, the paradigm of compute that deep learning was um, inducing when it comes to inferring um, in a power envelope that was constrained, uh, typically what you find at the edge as opposed to what you find in data centers. So, you know, you're dealing with a power envelope that are you know, on a good day, 25 watts, uh, on a very, very bad day, one watt type uh, power envelope. So that led to the need to go and rebuild a complete stack, not only from a, from an underlying hardware substrate architecture, but also, you know, um, how you efficiently compile uh, neural networks uh, to, uh, to, to essentially get performance at a very low power footprint. And uh, that stack, both from a hardware architecture and, and compiler um, up to framework level, is essentially what uh, Movidius developed uh, to enable um, AI at the edge to become a concept. It was actually uh, uh, quite a foresight in 2012. It's actually uh, uh, now in 2019. It is becoming a growing trend. We'll get back on that during this session. But uh, 
but uh, at that time, you know, um, uh, it was uh, it was not that popular, I would say. So, Hoseb, NetApp is doing some things with the Edge to Corda Cloud piece uh, as well with AI. What are we doing at the Edge for NetApp? So, you know, we've been uh, working on the Edge for quite some time at the moment. You know, the whole idea of getting ONTAP outside the uh, the traditional uh, AFF or even the fast boxes was very uh, rational idea to even move the, the ONTAP into the Edge. So basically what we're doing in the Edge with all this uh, ONTAP select at the moment uh, on a ruggedized devices is... Uh, basically uh, trying to bring the data management features into the edge, right? Um, edge requires a very quite good amount of data management. Uh, you know, size uh, on the edge really matters, uh, both from capacity, both from physical size perspective, as well as performance on the edge really matters. So if, if you're doing um, inferencing in the edge, then latency is, is your key uh, feature to look at or your key uh, aspect uh, to look at. So with Max Data and ONTAP Select combined together, I think we're bringing our rich data management features into the edge to enable those who want to do um, data collection, push it into the core afterwards, or even inferencing on the edge possible with, with a very low data access latency. So Hoseb mentioned some data management pieces there. So Remy, what is the data management piece like for the edge, and you know how does that holistic architecture fit in there? It's a great question because it's part of a um, of a bigger concept. Today, when when you look at nominal deployment, what's happening, and, and you guys uh, know that quite well, you know, uh, large scale training. Uh, um, have a tendency to take place in a uh, uh, multi-cluster environment, most of the time in the cloud, where actually, you know, um, data lakes are uh, where the repo of very large data sets uh, and where actually um, you um, you end up actually uh, uh, pulling data for, uh, from data lakes to go and train large-scale models. Those models, when ready, uh, um, then have a tendency to get deployed at the edge of the network. And here, they get deployed as is. Oh, by the way, those models, when they get deployed to the edge of the network, can be deployed as is. Or, um, and that's actually uh, most of the time what's happening, uh, uh, they also tend to, um, uh, to go and be uh, restructured you know, through techniques like quantization, through techniques like different optimization, so that actually they become more compact and you can essentially uh, uh, run them more efficiently and at the edge. Uh, at that time, in this nominal deployment, the critical piece of the equation now and what we see every day is how customers are essentially, you know, uh, from a data management standpoint, how are they um, uh, sending back or capturing uh, salient data uh, at the edge so that actually the model can be retrained against corner data. And by corner data, I mean data that is likely to make the model fail. And as such, you know, very quality, um, high quality data for the model to become um, even more efficient um, uh, downstream. So I think this is um, the nominal deployment that we see today. Um, but I do, do not believe, I, I think there is a massive trend which is, uh, you know, starting to pop up and will become more and more important over time uh, centered around federated learning. And by that, I mean uh, the data uh, may not have to leave the on-prem because more and more we're going to find ourselves in a situation where, and, you know, obviously there are two industries that are very prone to this, so I'll, I'll use these examples, but I don't believe it's limited to them, um, the financial industry 
financial service industry and the healthcare industry. Uh, the latter is where I, I spend quite some time. And where you see that actually there is a lot of sensitivity around privacy of the data at stake and, and where federated learning is going to enable essentially the data to essentially remain on-prem on and the model to be trained uh, um, in a very efficient manner uh, without actually having to aggregate um, all data sets in one spot for the training workload. Uh, I think this is, a, uh, this is a massive trend that we see um, uh, picking a lot of momentum over the coming five years. I think that's absolutely spot on, uh, Remy. Uh, we, we see that as well. Uh, you know, the, the trend of the cloud is there, but uh, we, we're seeing more and more people, especially in the AI space, being very careful about moving out their data, especially if we're dealing with, with really sensitive data. To, you know, financials is a very, very, very good example in this space where, uh, you know, previously when the data was, you know, some of the archive data, we could move out uh, files, we could move out. But when we're talking about improving customer experience using AI or machine learning, uh, specifically within AI, um, you know, we are dealing with customer um, previously collected data from the customer history data. And that's really a sensitive data where, you know, moving into the cloud is is kind of skeptical uh, for some of the fin big financial uh, users now, um, there, it's it's not that there there are no people doing not doing the cloud. That also not true to say, but uh, I I agree with Remy here that um, having the data stored in one place. Uh, it is really something that that we are talking every day to uh, any of our customers who want to do AI. Specifically, the problem of having data silos is coming up to the surface nowadays. Uh, you know, having data scattered in different databases, having data scattered across different data storage platforms, having some data within the cloud, some data on S3. You could imagine, I mean, when we do these workshops with our customers, we discovered that we are dealing with a minimum of four or five different data platforms. And all these problems are coming up into the surface now because previously every department was happy, every department was owning their data, everyone was accessing the data. You need an information from HR, you just contact the HR person, he gives you an, an, a screenshot of his Tableau view or, or you know, um, an extract of his Excel spreadsheet. However, today data scientists are coming and they want all the data from all the departments and that's why, you know, oh wait, hold on there. Well, we don't have all this data in one place. Well, and then at, the, at that time, data scientists is saying, well, once you have this data at one place, call me back and I'll come and do some good stuff on your data. This is all about options, too, because when you talk to people and you mention cloud, some people embrace it and some people run from it. And, you know, they run from it for, for a variety of reasons. One of those is security, like you mentioned. Uh, another is regulation of data, right? You know, GDPR comes into play there. And also cost. Uh, pulling that data out of the cloud is going to you know add, add up over time. So people are going to want to keep things on-prem as much as possible to reduce those costs and use the cloud only when necessary. Yeah, yeah. And that is also to, to complement what both of you said. I, I, I think that... Um, um, there is also a growing sophistication of those customers. You know, they are they are starting to understand the notion of data gravity. They are starting to understand the notion that actually it is difficult once you've done a step of adopting a specific data lake providers to go and abstract yourself from it. So uh, uh, all of that also play in action in terms of the sophistication of those customers that are becoming uh, 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 all those trends. 
uh, leads to uh, what you just both of you just described, uh, I believe. Yeah, and it's a matter of sometimes you learn best by experiencing. <laughs> correct, right? correct. So these customers have tried the cloud and they've found what works and what doesn't, and now they're readjusting their expectations and their overall architectures. Correct. Correct, correct, and and it's not a surprise uh, uh, that uh, to complement what you just said, it's not a surprise that you see uh, efforts like Outpost, effort like Entos. They are not coming; uh, they are not falling from the sky. I mean, they also uh, can be uh, perceived as a, as a response to uh, uh, to what where customers are heading. There was a research recently as well where you know one of the analysts were asking uh, customers. Where are you doing um, every and each stage of your data pi or AI pipeline, uh, whether it is in a, uh, in a public cloud, edge, or core data center? And we got, I mean, they got mixed of uh, responders. There was like no one answer saying, oh, I'm doing data selection for training, for example, only on-prem. Um, there was like edge, on-prem, core um, cloud, and then the same for model deployment, the same for uh, training and retraining the data, the same for the data integration, the same for the data preparation. Um, so that's why I think having a holistic data management uh, portfolio that uh, spans across the edge to core to cloud as you start your conversation with is very important, especially, you know, we even just, I mean, believe it or not, we face customers who want to go to the cloud because they think their on-prem security is weak and they can get better security within the cloud. Um, and I think that's the flexibility that, that we give to our customers, right? Whenever we're, we're meeting anyone, uh, we're not really pushing one over the other. It's more of what the customer needs and what customer requirements are. If they don't have good security teams on premises, they will basically go uh, to the cloud. If, they, if they've done their you know, uh, math or calculations and they've seen that, oh, cloud is expensive for them, they're going back on premises. We also saw that type of customers. We can help them. And that's the value that we're bringing at the moment into the table. So, Remy, how does this data capture happen? You know, what does it look like from the AI side with the advanced analytics? You know, what are some of the characteristics of that? It's very heterogeneous. I think that the uh, maybe you know we'll give the uh, the example of um, uh, of the edge of the network because uh, it's maybe um, quite easy to understand. I, I would say you have a sensification uh, of devices that is uh, uh, moving at light speed in any industry, as a matter of fact, where um, more and more data is being actually sensed and properly captured at the edge. One of the things that I'm uh, that I've been spending some time on, to tell you the truth, was uh, is centered around um, you know all the phase related to uh, okay, you capture you know terabyte of data, but what is your process to um, index and ingest and properly labelize and annotate um, data for the data to be of use right um, downstream the um, in the machine learning workflow? And today, I I, I think that. Um, this is a, a big area of um, of study. There are, you know, there are one way to look, to to do it, uh, which is a bit more brute force. And by brute force, I mean that actually um, it requires, you know, a, a human intervention, mechanical Turks. Even though most of uh, uh, most of the company in that field, I think, are, are also working to a part of the process automated the other way to uh, to that i'm seeing that is becoming interesting to uh, to go and and work this out is is actually um 
to um, automate um, the labelization function. Uh, and uh, and that's actually a very promising category, uh, which essentially, uh, by defining labelization, labelization function, you can essentially uh, reduce uh, dramatically the burden uh, or, or at least be much more efficient in, you know, labelizing the vast amount of data that you're capturing. And the third is actually to potentially um, labelizing smarter, and that is um, around the line of using active learning to really only retain uh, data sets that are relevant in the context of uh, um, impacting the quality of the model that you will be training downstream. Uh, this thing, to tell you the truth, if I could be provocative for a minute, actually, this may become the highest level of differentiation in the machine learning workflow because uh, when you think of it, the rest of the pipeline, compute uh, is well understood. There will be a lot of innovation, but compute is something that is well understood. There is a lot of option in the training aspect, you know, the training in the context of uh, AutoML and, and, and other functionality to get to a trained model and deploy such a model. But with larger and larger and larger and larger models, uh, you can expect that actually people are not going to spend time to tune billions of parameters in the model. I think that actually people are going to spend time to essentially feed very high quality data into those models to get to their end game. So I'm, um, I, I do believe that this front end of the process, you know, this ingestion prep and labelization phase is going to be an area of massive innovation. Uh, I believe that uh, there are few companies working in that space that I'm uh, very excited by, and I, I, uh, I, um, I, I, I took a little uh, deviation here, uh, Justin, but I, I felt it was important to, uh, to mention the dynamics uh, uh, on that front. Yeah, absolutely. So, Hoseb, this data has to land somewhere. Yeah. Um, where would, what are we doing about that? Um, be, before I, I jump into that, I just want to, you know, uh, kind of um, add to what Remy said here about the data pipeline. I 100% agree with, with him on on that. That's the area that everyone is moving out now. You know, traditionally data scientists, they, they went and built this pipeline manually. Sometimes then we have seen the, you know, the rise of different tools that do uh, pipeline automation as well. Now with the uh, AutoML, we're doing even, uh, you know, feature automation, all the, all the automation stuff. And in that, even in that space, we are as, uh, we, we, you know, uh, in NetApp, we're trying to contribute to that by, you know, integrating uh, with, with all the good things that we have with Trident and Kubernetes um, and, and the NKS stuff. So just to give you an example, recently, you know, one of our data scientists out of, EMEA, or actually one data scientist uh, partnered with one of our DevOps guys just to, you know, get together and say, what can we do to make the life of a data scientist better? Like, you know, there's a lot of other things out there making the life of data scientists better, but there's still one thing missing is how do they, you know, manage the data? Um, because, you know, data pipeline or sorry, AI pipeline, to be more specific, has many stages. It has the, you know, if you're doing this on Kubeflow, you can go out there and put analyze, transform, train, predict. Um, and each of these stages, probably there will be multiple data scientists working on, data scientists plus data engineers. And then you need to pass this ball very smoothly from one team to another or from one person to another. Or if someone leaves, another data scientist comes over, takes over. Um, you know, Kubeflow is a very good example of this. Kubeflow runs on Kubernetes. 
The other problem that these guys were facing is that the data. So either they manually tag the data that they are using, you know, where this data is staying, or the data is not in a shared environment. They have to copy the data into the different stages of the pipeline. So what we have done recently is, again, this is something coming out of very brilliant field uh, people that we have at NetApp, is they have integrated the Trident along with the Kubeflow, Kubernetes, so that the ball is passed from one stage to another within the AI pipeline without the need to really uh, interrupt with the data because the data is sitting in a one shared place. And now this is a good segue into your question, where is the data landing? The data is landing on a shared place. There is, we are really advocating the fact that you will need, multiple pe people will need access to the same data. Multiple data scientists will train different models on the same data. The cost of the AI infrastructure today is not really the, the cost of the, the purchase. It's not the capex. It's how you operate that infrastructure, right? You can buy a 50 terabyte, let's say we're talking numbers here. You can buy a 50 terabyte, you know, storage for your AI platform. But if you have five data scientists copying five times, then it is five times 50 will end up in a year or so. So it's more of the cost of operating it. We are trying to shift that model into a model of making your life simpler, easier, less cost, um, less expensive, more cost efficient. And that's why, you know, we have seen uh, the rise of NFS for these workloads. Uh, NFS is a very, you know, again, I'm giving some storage terms here. Um, I was a CSE, I shouldn't you know, forget that fact. But now I'm moving more into the data science and business development side, but we're using a shared, uh, in, you know, aspect of, of this storage where multiple people can access the same data. Uh, the data can, you know, stay there and the AI pipeline can flow from one stage to another without interruption. And this adds to the automation piece that uh, Remy was talking about. Um, and, you know, this is very well being uh, accepted in, in, um, in, in the industry, especially by the, by the different data science teams within one organization. As these things is getting to scale, we are moving to a mode where things were small and simple, you know, team of one with relatively small experiments on single machine, uh, no need to share resources or to productize results. And, you know, uh, uh, and, and where it was a simple infrastructure uh, to manage was possible. But when you move, a scalability kicks in, uh, you know, you find yourself exactly like he said, you know, he mentioned the ability for uh, multiple data scientists to get access to the same resources, storage, but also actually compute. And also, you know, um, continue to build on that, the ability to do um, experiment tracking for reproducibility and collaboration. The first part being super important because you need to be able to go and reproduce uh, runs um, independently of the data scientist, even still being at the company. So uh, you see that becoming... Um, if you talk with any companies that are trying, you know, to come with an opinionated uh, um, uh, deep learning native workflow, uh, you see all of them going after that problem in terms of, you know, uh, uh, infrastructure management and resource sharing, um, experiment tra experimentation tracking for reproducibility and collaboration, because they know this is actually the pain point of, uh, of, um, of any companies when you move from one data scientist to five to 10 to 50, you know. And Remy, adding to your point of tracking, you know, I'm, uh, I'm kind of just getting the words from you. And I'm, I'm going to add here the other fact that we did is the versioning. So, you know, as you know, versioning is a big thing in, in, in the life of a data scientist because yes. this is a very iterative process. It's not only a one-time done job. 
Um, and, you know, most of the time, and we asked our data scientists, you know, we hired data scientists within that. We asked them, what was your one of your problems? And, you know, the answer was, we, you, we have a very good tools on versioning the code, but, you know, most of the time, versioning the code is not uh, integrated with the data versioning. So if I'm doing my training today with a set of data, uh, if I do my training tomorrow with another set of data, I either have to manually, um, you know, uh, tag this version of the data with the version of the code, um, or, you know, uh, I have to move my data into the cloud so that it is, it is tagged in the cloud, where sometimes that's a problem, especially if you're working in financial environment. So in that aspect, uh, Justin, what we have done is, you know, uh, we have started using all these features that we had traditionally in NetApp, such as snapshots and others, where we traditionally use them for backing up and copying the data, uh, sorry, backing up and snapping the data. Now we're, we're using that feature to make the life of data scientists easier by integrating that into GitHub. Uh, and taking, you know, uh, versions of the data um, along with the versions of the code so that the data scientists can have, you know, this holistic view of their different versions of the, of the data along with the code. This could apply if this data scientist goes away and another one comes in or if they are scaling, as Remy mentioned. This makes it much easier than having, uh, imagine, we, we've seen teams having spreadsheets of saying, okay, this training was done on this data sitting on this, uh, share or on this volume or in this, uh, you know, IP address even sometimes. So, you know, all that is going away. We want to make this, um, you know, we want to democratize AI as much as possible and help people contribute to this space with, with all the features that we have. Yeah, and I was thinking along the line, same lines of the ONTAP features, you know, not just snapshots, but also things like FlexClone, right? You can create copies of an entire volume that don't take up space, so that if multiple data scientists need to, to run multiple training on data sets or even on data sets that are different versions, they can do that with FlexClone. Exactly, yep. And also FlexCache, right? FlexCache gives you localized copies of data for fast access, fast read, so that gives you the ability to spread your data science learning across the globe. If you want to add one more feature, we've got the, uh, you know, flex group. I've heard of those. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we also, we're, we're, we have also seen people, you know, uh, maybe Remy can comment on this also. So, you know, the, the training data is sometimes an active data set, uh, especially in the auto, automotive industry where we have this huge uh, camera radar, all these images coming in. Um, the active data set is not, sometimes in petabytes, but you know, you end up having petabytes of data. People want to archive that, that data for regulatory purposes. And here comes our uh, S3 integration, either on premises or in the cloud, where we can even have subset of that data sitting in a very high performance tier doing the training. And then once the training is done, we can just uh, you know, smoothly and seamlessly move that data into, into an S3 rep. Uh, to for archiving purposes. So, you know, there's all other features. That's how where we are differentiating ourselves with a unique set of the features that applies to this field. Mm. Mm. Very good. So, so Remy, we talked a lot about edge to core to cloud. Um, could you break down to, for me the edge, the core, and the cloud piece and what where it all fits? Like, what is what happens at the edge, what happens in the core phase, and what happens in the cloud phase? There is, as, as you know, quite well, a lot of action on the uh, on the training side, and most of the training workloads right now, uh, because of the intensity of the compute, because of the need for uh, faster and faster time to train, 
coupled with the fact that the models are using 2x more compute, the need um, for um, training compute is doubling by 2x every three and a half months, and not only because of the growing adoption, but also because of the models becoming larger and larger. Uh, you're talking about, uh, if you take a model like BERT Large or uh, Transformer, uh, uh, which are both used in the context of uh, natural language processing, you're talking about billions of parameters. Um, this, all of that combined is leading for a lot of uh, the bulk of the training to be done in data centers right now, even though I, I, I think it will change over time as compute becomes more efficient. What we do uh, um, at Intel in, in the context of that um, training uh, set is, you know, uh, we have obviously, you know, uh, a product that we deployed for compute, uh, both with our uh, Xeon franchise, but also what we do with our um, uh, neural network processors. Uh, uh, um, and we also, you know, uh, uh, spend a lot of time on the um, um, interconnect fabric because training workloads um, are, are um, as much a compute issue uh, um, as they are actually an interconnect issue because most of those runs end up, you know, being deployed on a multi-compute uh, clusters um, and, and, and actually with a trend going more and more toward having dedicated pods um, which are reserved for DL training workloads uh, because then those pods being more efficient um, in the grand scheme of things. This is a, one part of a, where we focus our attention. There is also a trend on the training uh, which is relating back to the federated learning that we are talking about, for the training to also take place at the edge. It's a very beginning uh, of the journey, but actually with federated learning and the notion of training at the edge where you can do some amount of adjustments and where you can essentially find yourself where things, if I can call it this way, things, uh, collaboratively learned a shared prediction model and essentially um, only share a weight and activation for the mother load model to be uh, uh, to be updated. Uh, that trend will force some amount of training as well over time to be pushed at the edge. Um, when we look at inference, uh, the, the, the problem is uh, very, very different for us or, uh, in the sense that we, we also actually cover the entire spectrum because inference end up being deployed at each step of what you just described, Justin, uh, not only in the data center, but also at the edge of the network and in things. And, and as a matter of fact, I will go further. I will tell you that the vast majority of the growth um, uh, for inference end up being at the edge. And by edge, I mean both at the edge of the network and um, and into things. Uh, clearly, there is a vast business uh, um, at stake um, in data centers where, you know, the bulk of the workload are the one you know, most of them being on recommendation and natural language processing. But actually, um, we see as well for the latency reason that uh, Oseb was talking about, sometimes for privacy reasons, we see a lot of inference now being pushed at the edge in any industries, you know, whether it's for surveillance that are happening either in camera or in an aggregation point sitting at the edge of the network, whether it's for industrial use, for defect detection in the factory uh, or any sort of um, uh, automated uh, detection, whether it's in retail where actually uh, we've been working uh, with companies like JD.com, Tencent, Alibaba to essentially give retail stores the ability to, to have predictive analysis and 
some use case around the line of you know uh, too many uh, you know being able actually to act on a line being too long or to be able to act on hot zones in the stores where people are uh, aggregating or many different type of use cases that those guys are working on uh, we've been working on that as well on healthcare we, we talked about that recently so we see a lot of this inference now being pushed more and more and more and more at the edge of the network and I think it's uh, it's a massive trend uh, uh, which um, obviously for us at Intel um, we see as an opportunity because it is allowing us actually to push our gears uh, uh, and essentially um, uh, if you see if you want it's nearly to, to cloudify the edge uh, if I can put it this way to embrace that trend. Hoseb, um my understanding is we might have ways to get in and out of cloud and into the edge and back again. Is that is that right? Um, if you think so, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. So this is one of the one of the you know key features. A lot of people ask ask me when I go or ask us when we go into custom meetings why we should use NetApp, right? Why we should use NetApp for our AI? And you know, traditionally, if you go back three four years ago, everything was about performance numbers. Everything, oh, we do hundred megabytes per second. We do uh, we do uh, this gigabytes per second. But I think that is becoming more of telling. Uh, someone, if you're buying a car, oh, this car comes with a USB port. I think um, for me today, what I say is more of helping people who want to start their AI journey in the cloud. We see this trend coming up very, uh, very obviously that 90% of people starting their AI journey in the cloud uh, for many reasons. First is, you know, they probably don't have the budget to go with, uh, with on-prem uh, purchases. Um, they probably just trying it, which is the most, you know, um, uh, high likely reason uh, is because they're just doing this to to try it, to test it, to pilot it. And then if it works, if we scale, then we move back on premises. Um, and so that's so when we hear that story, it's just the music to our ears because that helps us tell them, yeah, we can enable you. We can help you do this because because the other afraid these guys have. So what if we. What if we are succeeding in this? What if we want to scale? Are we tied now into the cloud? Do we need to continue? So this also comes with the pressure of, okay, where do we start, right? From day one, do we pick one of the hyperscalers? Which hyperscaler we pick? Because thinking that they're going to stick to this for their lifetime, uh, where in reality, uh, you know, we help customers say, hey, start today with any hyperscaler you're familiar with. And if you want to move into another hyperscaler, well, guess what? With our NKS today, the NetApp Kubernetes Services integration, along with the containers, along with Kubeflow, along with Trident, we can move this whole workload for you from one cloud to another. And even if you want to move to on-premises, we have ways. The data is the big elephant. The compute, you can turn it off, you can turn it on. Um, you know, your models, you can just shift them through containers from on-premises into the cloud or, or vice versa. Uh, the data is the big elephant here. The data comes with the cost of moving in and out. The data comes with the bandwidth of moving in and out. That's where NetApp's value comes into the play. We enable, we are contributing to this space by helping customers start their AI today in any cloud they want. And then if they scale, if they feel the need to shift among the clouds or shift from on cloud, from cloud into on-premises, we're definitely helping them do so. Um, so that's why, you know, one of the very big value adds that NetApp has is this portfolio-rich uh, features, even the edge, right? Without forgetting the edge, you can even bypass the, uh, the, the core if you're just doing edge and cloud model. 
Um, so even that is possible with NetApp's, uh, you know, uh, services on the edge and NetApp's all these uh, services within the major hyperscalers. So Remy, what is Intel doing for the edge to quarter cloud piece? Intel look at it, you know, uh, very simply put in a store, uh, compute, connect manner uh, because all of those pieces are uh, high value to us. So uh, from a compute substrate standpoint, we have um, products that are actually covering the entire spectrum of the machine learning workflow. Like I I was saying, you know, both from an inference versus training standpoint. Uh, On the training side, I I did mention, you know, uh, uh, what we're doing, uh, not only with our Xeon franchise, but also um, uh, what we're doing with our uh, network, uh, neural network processors that was talked about uh, and uh, mentioned this week during the hardship conference. On the inference, we have also during this hardship conference, as a matter of fact, introduced details about um, our neural network processors for inference. Um, again, uh, data center class device uh, um, in terms of compute and in terms of power footprint, but we also have um, embedded uh, um, um, hardware acceleration for inference in data centers in our Xeon franchise with what we call uh, uh, a DL boost, which are essentially a vector extension uh, for uh, for neural network processing. So that covers, you know, the cloud aspects. Um, on the edge of the network, um, uh, we, you know, we we've spent a lot of time with the um, uh, with the Movidus product line to to make the Movidus product line uh, very relevant for not only you know aggregation point, uh, but also you know deployment in um, um, in devices. And 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 what's very important to understand is what Intel is really working hard at is to um, to uh, on on the compute side is to uh, develop. Uh, and provide our customers an abstraction layer so that actually the customers is being helped uh, uh, to abstract itself from the specific Intel hardware substrate when it comes to their software development. And that's our, you know, that's our duty because uh, the goodness of our approach is we have, we, we, we firmly believe in a non-one-size-fits-all approach um, as opposed to others uh, in the compute world. Uh, we, it is clearly entrenched, but actually it comes with a tax um, um, uh, on us, which is, okay, well, fine, it's going to be heterogeneous backends, but at least please provide an abstraction layer uh, that is uh, um, allowing us to uh, abstract the uh, underlying hardware. So we have multiple initiatives. Uh, the, the, the foundational one is what we call One API, uh, which we are fiercely working towards, which is allowing us to abstract um, our backends through a, a, a unified programming model. And then on top of One API, we also have actually uh, um, initiative like OpenVINO, uh, which are essentially allowing us to do in a consistent manner, systemic manner, um, uh, giving actually tools for our developers to do uh, model optimization and inference um, um, in an automated manner on any hardware substrate of Intel, whether it's Xeon, whether it's NMP, whether it's Movidus, or whether it's FPGA. It's a very big initiative because, again, it gives this flexibility um, uh, to our customers. So really, you know, uh, uh, on the compute side, we are very committed to this. On the interconnect side, you know, we, we have multiple initiatives. You, you also, and this is related to our interconnect strategy, you saw some move we've made recently with the acquisition of, um, of Barefoot Networks. Um, it is, uh, you know, it is an, uh, an important acquisition for uh, for Intel in the context of continuing to build, you know, a, a, a very strong footprint on the interconnect, um, uh, specifically in the context of the data center and obviously on storage. You know, uh, uh, I'm sure that you guys are 
very well aware of what we're doing with Optane and, and, and how we're trying to go and uh, uh, make uh, Optane a, a first-class citizen in, in data centers. So, um, you know, store compute move, uh, a move being the interconnect piece in the store compute move piece, we're really trying to go and make sure we offer a complete end-to-end -end portfolio for any workload classes, whether inference or training. Uh, uh, and, and I would add uh, uh, as well that we are also very actively working on what's next, uh, specifically at the edge, we are working on, a, on, on extremely promising initiatives Initiatives around a, a neuromorphic computing. You, you may have heard about our activity on LOHI, and we have also other uh, um, initiative in uh, in the overall space of AI uh, in terms of hardware substrate as to uh, uh, where things will go. I'll give you a, a little bit of an advertisement window. I just give you a little uh, advertisement on our product portfolio here, but uh, uh, it's a it's a complex world and uh, uh, it's a complex portfolio for uh, Intel to uh, to bring to bear. All right, so let's kind of put it all together, tie it up with a bow. Um, where do we start when we re-architect our infrastructure to take on AI workloads? Because, you know, companies and enterprises are having to start to adjust to this because it's becoming a very real uh, factor in how companies do business. I think most of the time where you need to have a, a data AI strategy. And, and, you know, again, I usually say this. It's, if you go back, uh, and this is, you know, came out of one of the uh, you know, trainings that, that the, the Andrew NG did, uh, he said very, very clever thing. He said, not every company who is doing deep learning is an AI company. Uh, and, and this goes back into the same of the internet era where he, he also used the, you know, the internet era example where he said, not every uh, shopping mall who has a website is, a, is actually an online store. So, uh, so, you know, when you go back, if you're an AI, if you want to do an AI, what makes an AI company? Uh, and I quote him a bit here as well. Um, it is you need to have a good data acquisition strategy. That's definitely the place to start with. Right. You need to. It's not like I'm waking up today and I want to do AI. So we need to go back and see what type of data we have, what type of data we were collecting. Now, again, before this, we also need to set the business uh, initiative, right? What we're trying to achieve here, talk to the business unit. Is it the, that we want to improve customer experience? Is it that we want to, for example, reduce cost of operations? Is it, for example, we want to try to cure something? So, you know, um, it all starts from the business case. Now, after the business case, we move and see, okay, do we have the data uh, and enough data and clean data and not biased data to uh, to do this, um, and after that, if we say if we check mark all of this, we go and say, all right, let's put out a, a strategy, a plan. Let's do a pilot first. You know, we cannot even go and and put all our budget over there. We we start with a pilot project. Uh, we do it on a small certain amount of data uh, with 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 couple of algorithms to see if they are working, if they're giving us the accuracy we want, uh, if they're giving us the recall we want, the error rate we want. And then after that, if we see an outcome, um, we, we move into a scaled version of, of this deployment. And all of this, in the meantime, you've got to have teams to do this, right? So you've got to hire people who understand data science. This is what we, what we're, what, what customers we see doing is these are the steps Otherwise, you're going to get into this, uh, this endless loop of where are we at in, a, in our AI project, and you see everyone's finger you know, pointing the other one, 
saying, oh, we're waiting the data. And the guy said, no, we're waiting the business case. The business case said, oh, but we don't have a data scientist to see with us. What can we do with you here? You know, all of this. So it has to be uh, program. Uh, it has to be in a, in a way um, that that flows from the business case until we have the data, until we have the team, into starting a pilot project and ending up with a scaling. Maybe um, to bring a complementary perspective, the next decade winners in any industry will uh, either re-architect their operating model um, around um, a centralized data pipeline and decentralized experimentation process. I, 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 I ended up calling that, you know, the AI factory, where, uh, where essentially, you know, uh, uh, your products are the services you can render out of the data that your business is collecting. Uh, and either we, uh, either you will re-architect and you will adopt that model, or I, I think that actually you will become irrelevant. And that's true for any industry. Uh, uh, and that's the implication of a data-centric world, um, I would say. And, and all of you see, you know, there are clear, uh, uh, there are clear examples that you know um, the, play, the the vanilla examples in the uh, transportation of the service business with Uber or uh, Ants Financial in Finance or Netflix for Media. But actually, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, because um, there is a gazillions of industrial, retail, healthcare, education, even education, uh, that is actually uh, where businesses are going to have to go and be re-architected around this data pipeline, and where the collaboration between teams shall not become, there shall not be bespoke, but shall be essentially uh, done uh, using the concept of API, where you are forbidden. Uh, to uh, uh, share data or share insights any other way than through well-defined API. And, and, and if you don't, and for companies, I don't, I don't think that embrace that. I, you know, I, I think they'll disappear. Yeah, yeah and, and, and Justin, just to add, I mean, I didn't mention infrastructure in my, uh, in my previous answer. So we've been talking about, you know, computer and, and data along this, this call. Uh, um, or this podcast, uh, but you know, infrastructure is is uh, most of the time. We've seen research uh, saying that customers saying forty percent of the time the infrastructure is the impeding uh, process in there that is getting in our in their way of of implementing their AI initiatives and projects. So we definitely uh, see infrastructure being either uh, costly for the customers or you know uh, different to get the IT guys connected to the data scientists, but you know, infrastructure comes into the play. However, the points that I mentioned were just the starters, where to start from in the AI, but eventually we'll get into what we have discussed within this podcast. All right, Joseb, Remy, thanks so much for joining us today and talking to us about AI and the data pipeline. Uh, Remy, if we want to contact you, how do we do that? Uh, wow. <laughs> you can... Uh, uh... Uh, I would say LinkedIn may be the safest way to get access to me. You don't want to give out your personal phone number? That's too bad. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I don't do that. Uh, it could be dangerous. <laughs> it could be. We'll, uh, we'll add your LinkedIn profile to the to the show uh, notes. Uh, Hoseb, how do we reach you? Uh, well, actually, I'm trying to get more followers on Twitter, so I think this is a good uh, way to get uh, my Twitter uh, handle. Yes. Uh, so it's my first name. It's uh, Hotel Oscar Sierra Echo Bravo. Delta Mikey, Hosep DM, um, and please add me. All right, excellent. We will add that also to the show notes. Again, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us all about AI. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet 
at NetApp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, or via TechOnTapPodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Josep Dermillion and Intel's Remy El Ouzan for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.